This is an occasional podcast series in the afterlife of my documentary about Samuel Barber. These Capricorn conversations are with composers and musicians whose orbits have intersected with that famous gathering place called Capricorn, where Barbara Minotti also lived. I'm Paul Moon, and this conversation today is with composer Tobias Picker at the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Tobias, thank you for sharing your reflections today. Sure. Happy to be here. There are two things about you that I can't resist starting off with. I'll get to your correspondence with Giancarlo Minotti, but first... I noted uh, that from an early age, you've said that your favorite composer was Brahms. And there's a concert that one can watch that has been linked to in the episode's description where one can see you playing an intermezzo of Brahms. And and when one sees that, one sees a deep connection that you have with Brahms. So I just thought it'd be as an icebreaker to sort of geek out on Brahms. I mean, Mm -hmm. literally to talk about your thoughts on Brahms and the role that he played early on in your life. I, I can't resist mentioning Barber's, Samuel Barber's favorite composer too. This, I did, I did not know that Brahms was Barber's favorite composer, but, but um, I can understand why Brahms was so special to, to Barber and is, is in just a, a class by himself, apart from all other composers. Well, I think all truly great composers are in a class by themselves. They are each one is a silo. Say, let's say, as they are, as people say today. I don't even know if that's the correct use of the term silo, but um, they are in classes by themselves. And but Brahms. Is um, I don't I I hesitate to say uh, to use the word I'm thinking because it, it, I don't in any way want to belittle Brahms. It could almost sound belittling, but it's not. It's meant in the best sense of the word that it's that his music is comforting. It's um for me it's it's. It's comfort music. It's it's a uh, it's the music of home. It's the music of of healing. It's the music through through which we can resolve emotional conflict. Um, and in with with which we can soothe our sorrow uh, and. And augment our our joy. It's funny. There was a in in a biography about Barbara. Barbara Heyman cited a New York Times critic um, who, at the turn of the twentieth century, wrote something to the effect of Brahms has written music as if nothing ever happened for a hundred years before. <laughs> As if uh, it was old-fashioned. That was written about Brahms at the turn of the twentieth, nineteenth into twentieth. Yeah, that's, that's interesting because I've seen other music critics steal that line so many times um, to put down composers they don't like. In other words, was Brahms just sort of hearkening to a long begone era 
Um, and it's just that's just utter, utter nonsense. I mean, that would that that would be as if as if to say he was a continuation of Bach. <laughs> I mean, he was the logical next step after Bach or Mozart. I mean, that doesn't make any sense at all. It yeah. just makes no sense. And more on a more positive note, what is is there something unique about Brahms's compositional style that brought something new to music that's probably that perhaps is underappreciated? A unique um, idiomatic sound of Brahms. Well, it was it was a new. I think Brahms was a new voice. Uh, he was he Brahms' name is I think onomatopoetic for his music. It has its. To say something is Brahmsian it tells you something already about the music. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's it uh, you it it bathes you in. Well, he, he's just a fascinating composer. His his uh, ideas of of counterpoint and rhythm at uh, his his use of. Uh, of polyrhythms and uh, counter melody, the, the inner the inner voice in Brahms is um, especially. I discovered it in the in learning the piano music as a child, and uh, how how crucial that the inner voice is to to Brahms. He also he was. He was able to make uh, to use three note light motifs and create an entire an entire piece with three notes, mm-hmm. which is what uh, Opus One Eighteen Number Two does. For me, yes, the, what the the the, the the soprano voice, as it were, is C sharp B D that is the is the mo- the motive for the whole piece, but the inner voice at is is a g sharp f sharp so everything in that piece is a permutation of the of the notes a g sharp f sharp including c sharp b d which is a sort of retrograde inversion or something of that but uh if you really if you really look into that piece with a microscope um there is not one thing in it that doesn't describe a permutation of those three notes, mm-hmm. A, G sharp, F sharp. Um, so, yeah, Brahms is like is, is is like nothing else. And well, let's talk about another composer because, uh, and I'm so glad I was just had the pleasure of seeing the actual letter itself. But I'd love to even hear you read it if you'd like. But if we can set it up, tell me the story. Uh, about your correspondence with the composer Giancarlo Minotti and how it came to be. Well, Minotti was the first living composers uh, whose music I, I encountered because uh, it's because I believe it was CBS commissioning, I think, fifteen operas or NBC, yeah, or was it NBC? Mm-hmm. By fifteen composers, 
um, to, to write operas for television, network television. Can you, just saying that today makes me laugh how the, how the world has changed since the 50s. And one of those, one of those operas was A Mall in the Night Visitors and became the most successful of, of all 15. Be, I'd love to go back now and look up which the other what the others were. I knew. I know Lucas wrote one. Lucas Foss wrote one. I don't. Know, I don't remember who the. I was. Well, I was just a little kid, but I. I have read about who the others were. But we really only remember Amal, and Amal was on on television every Christmas. Um, and I looked forward every Christmas to seeing Amal and the Night Visitors on TV. I also. I later became very close friends and and the accompanist of a great dancer named Mary Hingson who gave master classes she was a one of the star dancers of the Martha Graham company um the first one of the three one of three the three one of the, the group of three first black dancers to be hired uh by by Martha Graham and perhaps by I don't know by any company in the late forties early fifties, and we did master classes together with, uh, of, of where I accompanied these dance classes. Um, and Martha uh, Mary, I later learned was a one of the dancers in that original production of A Mall in the Night Visitors, and um, it, it was unavailable. In any other way, to me, I had no access to. You know, I didn't have the record. There must have been a recording of it by by the early '60s, uh, late '50s, or maybe maybe not. I don't know. It was still very much alive and happening. Um, so, it it was. I I memorized a lot of a lot of it, and uh, my uh, sister, my older sister. Uh, when once when my parents were on, I think they went had gone to Cuba for a vacation, organized a a show for to put on for them when they returned. So everybody, my brother, and my and my sister, and uh, our, uh, another member of the family, when my parents arrived, put put on a show. And one of in on this. On this show, one of the things it was a variety show, and one of them I was uh, Casper mm -hmm. in Amal, mm -hmm. and I I sang "This Is My Box" mm -hmm. uh, using my mother's sewing old-fashioned sewing box, and um, looking you know to get it, looking forward to the moment when I wait when I could s say in the third drawer I keep licorice. Licorice, <laughs> long black shiny licorice. Right. Have some, and Casper uh, Ka gets the best laughs. Yes. In <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, when I was eight, or eight or nine, I got my, I think eight maybe I started piano lessons and got my first piano, uh, and I immediately started to. Improvise and I and try to compose. I took piano lessons, but my what my I was much more interested in in well. I was very interested in learning 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 to 
to play the music I could read that was written, but I was more interested in figuring out how to write down music that was in my head. And so I, uh, I knew then that I, that was what I wanted to do and that was who I was. And my father suggested, why don't, why don't you write a letter to Minotti? Maybe he'll answer you. And I, I, and so I did, and my father got his address. And he, my father worked at CBS at the time, so he was able to get his address at, at in at Capricorn in Mount Kisco, which was a town, a town, two towns over from where I grew up in Pound Ridge, New York. I uh, and um, I wrote him a letter and talked about my aspirations. I was fascinated by Schubert. Life. I was fascinated with composers' lives as a child. My bedtime stories were were lives of the great composers. Uh, my mother would read to me. I was re I was really interested in, especially in Schubert, and um, I thought an opera about Schubert. Somehow I imagined this opera about Schubert that I was writing, and um, so I wrote to him uh, to telling him I was a composer and that I was going to write an opera about Schubert. And he did, he did answer my letter. And, uh, and um, I've, I've kept it all these years. For It's now, it'll be um, 59, 59 years in a few weeks ago that I received this letter. And it was a very exciting day when it came in the mailbox. Uh, when I went to the mailbox and there was a letter from Capricorn. And it, it reads, it's on Capricorn Stationery, January 5th, 1963, and it reads, Dear Toby, which is what I was called as a boy, I was very happy to receive your letter because a long time ago I wrote an opera called The Medium in which there, the hero is also called Toby like you. I share with you a love for Schubert and I'm sure your opera should be most interesting. I'm sorry we cannot meet now because I'd written saying I wanted to meet him. Uh, but I'm, I'm about to sail for France where my new opera will be performed. However, if you care to get in touch with me again when I return in the fall, I shall be delighted to hear your compositions. My very best wishes for a happy new year. Sincerely, Giancarlo Minotti. And that was a, that was a big thrill, thrill to receive as a, as a, um, how old? I was eight. Um, and uh, but I didn't know anything about follow up in those days, and by by the fall, I was writing to the Central Park Zoo to see if the, I could get them to give give us a, a baby seal. <laughs> and um, but I was still. I mean, I hadn't given up. I I think I I didn't really feel entitled to to show him my compositions because I wasn't I didn't feel they were they were good enough to show him yet or finished enough to show him you know to really justify a a visit uh with him if they were complete compositions I probably would have had the instinct to follow up and and go show him but who knows you know what what would have what would have happened if I did I um I I think what's going to happen 
is that you're eventually someday going to finally write that opera about Schubert. <laughs> and then you're going to use a medium <laughs> to contact Giancarlo from the grave. That <laughs> <laughs> would be something. I wonder why no one has written an opera about Schubert. I think it's an interesting idea, but um, I mean, I'm not sure that his life was that operatic, but uh, he certainly certainly died tragically young. That's fairly operatic. Yeah, probably his most uh, marquee-named uh, piece is the one that notes his unfinished symphony. Yes, yes. The branding of unfinished. <laughs> the branding of a composer yes. is unfinished. He, 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 I'm sure he, I'm sure he planned it all out that way so that <laughs> it would be unfinished. And what? But I, 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 yeah, I, I, there was, the story came full circle because seven years later, uh, when I was 15, I had been studying the piano at the Juilliard Prep all those years, and um, my high school uh, had a career day. We assembled in the library, and a panel of um, professionals in the arts spoke to us each about their career, and we could ask questions. So there was Brenda Lewis, who was a, who was a, a soprano from the Met. Um, Paul Henry Long, the musicologist, was there. Elliot Feld, the choreographer. And I don't remember if there was anyone else, but Giancarlo Minotti was there. And my school was only a few minutes from his house. I don't know exactly where Capricorn was. I couldn't find it, even though I know the area. I don't know where it actually is. But um, the, the, the my school was in it was Fox Lane High School and was in Bedford, New York, which was next town over. So he it came to him to speak, and he he said. You, you, some of these other professions, you, you become these things. But if you're, if you're, you don't become a composer. You either are a composer or you're not. And you know, and if you are a composer, you know that you're a composer. So it's not a profession you choose. And so a light went off in my head because I, I suddenly, immediately felt I'd been wasting the last seven years becoming a pianist so that I could I could play the Emperor Concerto. I, I wanted a Steinway. My mother took me to Steinway Hall when I was starting the piano at eight or nine uh, to try out all the pianos. And I said, I want one. And she said, when you can play the Emperor Concerto, we'll buy you a Steinway. And so I was motivated, to, and I played the Emperor Concerto in the Manhattan School of Music Concerto Competition. And uh, and I said, remember back, you know, she said, no, I don't remember that. I said, well, I can assure you, you promised a, a Steinway if I played the Emperor Concerto. <laughs> so I got the Steinway. I still have that Steinway. It's a Steinway A, and I still have that piano. It's a... Uh, but... I I uh, didn't win the competition, 
concerto competition. And that same year, I met Minotti. I went up to Minotti after, when it was all over, introduced myself, and I said, I wrote you a letter when I was eight. My name is Toby. Do you remember? And he said he did remember that letter because nobody else named Toby had written him a letter that said they were a composer. And uh, he was very charming, and, and uh, we, we, I just mainly wanted to know if he remembered the letter. And after that career seminar was over, I went into a practice room in, in the music department, and, and I started actually writing down, a, a, seriously writing a piece, a piano piece, a set of piano pieces. And that day, that really was the day I started to compose in earnest, and I, and I haven't stopped. Um, and so Minotti played an enormously large role in my uh, role in my um, not becoming a composer, but coming out as a composer, realizing your destiny as a composer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, let's talk about that step along the way when you had certain other composers teaching you. To compose, and I see with names like um, Elliot Carter, Milton Babbitt, Charles Warren, and so uh, I know this is a tired narrative, but to the extent you have anything to say about the way that those composers aren't easy listening, they don't sound like Brahms, they don't sound like Minotti, um, but you did embrace modernism. You did embrace trying out what they did. Is that fair to say? Yes, more, more so, more Warren and then Carter and Babbitt. But I did, I did, I did, I was very drawn to, to Warren's music when I was when I was eighteen, seventeen, eighteen, and looking for a teacher. I I didn't I had no interest in going to, to liberal arts college. I wanted to. I wanted to study with a composer, and so that meant going to the conservatory where he taught, which was Manhattan School then. And uh, yeah, I I was when I discovered his music, I was I was completely just blown away by it. So it wasn't that I was drawn to modernism; I was drawn just to the world of of Warrenin's of Warrenin's musical vocabulary and it's an expression and it was it was later that i discovered carter I and later that i discovered babbitt but it was warren and that uh, his and he he became my mentor um so my what, teacher what, and mentor what role then would you say that both him and also Elliot Carter and Milton Babbitt played in your de the development of your style? Or is this the narrative of a turning point where you, the music that we hear today, of the, the music that your, your whole body of work, the body of work you're known for, lyrical, tonal, romantic is maybe a word that people can use that's assigned to a genre. Um, I just always am interested to ask composers whether they hear traces of their mentors in their writing. Um, some of it's not, some of it isn't tonal. And when it's tonal, my music is, it's all wrong. I mean, it's not, it doesn't follow any of the, any rules of tonality 
for the most part. And I, I, I might call it a kind of tonal modernism. Um, and, and yes, I do hear, I do hear uh, the fingerprints, or the maybe the the footsteps would be more accurate of my of my teachers in in my work. Um, Carter and more and more and much more so than Babbitt. I was not. I did not. Uh, I, I don't feel that I was I, ever influenced by by Milton, by Milton's music. I mean, I, he was a wonderful older composer friend to me, and so well, so were the others. But I, but Carter, both both Carter and Warren and were were very in the were in the lineage of Schoenberg and I'm and sorry Stravinsky and Schoenberg mm-hmm. uh, it's hard to say in which order but 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 in that I think they both embrace both both of those those two lineages which in a way are separate so yeah I I do I do I do hear it in my work, and 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 the echo of Stravinsky too. I think who I think of as the most inescapable influence of, of the twentieth, late twentieth century. For contrast, as well as to build on that, can we talk about Old and Lost Rivers, which we also hear in that you know concert that I had sure. the honor to film you playing the piano, and then we got to hear Mark play the piece for another uh, reading of that work. When did it emerge? Um, and then I'm gonna ask, I mean, again, because Barber is one reference point, is there, <laughs> do you feel like it's kind of your adagio for strings? It's a terribly no, it's not. beloved piece. <laughs> it, it, I should be so lucky, you know? I should be so lucky. And yeah, I, I, I guess I do. I think the adagio is longer, isn't it? It's about seven or eight minutes. Pretty close. Yeah. Uh, it depends who's conducting all the monsters. Christoph Eschenbach recorded it was six and a half minutes. When I wrote it, it was three minutes. So it really depends on how it's played. But I guess it is. You know, it 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 might be it might be my adagio for strings, the orchestra version, but. But the piano version is, I think of as my prelude in C sharp minor because Rachmaninoff was always called on to play that, and I, the only piece of mine that I ever play at the piano is Old and Lost Rivers. I mean, I did, I used to play Keys to the City, but uh, I, uh, I may t- take up some other pieces of mine now that I'm, I'm playing again. But uh, yeah, it. Um, it has, a, I guess, it has a uh, an adagio for strings quality to it. The circumstances of that piece, of course, being in the midst of a string quartet, the middle movement, but also very young, um, and it's not as as necessarily despairing and heavy as it sounds. In other words, he was kind of pretty happy-go-lucky at that time in his life. Um, it's associated with deep feeling and heavy gravitas but it's not quite that like it's not quite that simple you know i wonder whether similarly that 
that composition of yours arose out of not necessarily some heavy biographical moment, but it just was something that came out more or less perfect. Well, it was an improvisation that I, I played into a ghetto blaster on record when I pressed the record button. And um, it's just, in fact, the, the original improvisation of three minutes, which is what the length was when it was born, um, is being released. I forget the name of the record label, but the, the actual improvisation is being released as a single later this month uh, to mark the 35th anniversary of the, of the birth of Old and Lost Rivers. I see. And then how about... And I, didn't, I, mean, I did improvise it from beginning to end, and then I just transcribed it. I didn't change anything. It's fascinating. Um, where the rivers go, how does that... Uh, is it necessarily related to the piece? We hear it's, that in the video concert, too. It's related because I also I improvised that an entire piece. It's ten minutes from beginning to end, um, and transcribed it without changing a note. And it became it's in its first life the scene one uh, in Act One of my first opera, Emmeline. Mm, and um, I later realized, well, you know, it started out as a as a piano piece, it should uh, it should have a life as a piano piece too. I, to be honest, this has this great Houdini vibe to it. I, I just when you hear these pieces, they sound terribly intricate and accomplished as compositions rather than improvisations. So I'm literally kind of amazed at this moment. I didn't know that this was well known. Maybe it is. Oh, but, that's not well known. I mean, I think I've talked about. I think I may have talked about this. Uh, written about it in a program note but it who hey, can you name another contemporary who can do that who has composed who was who, who is an improviser as such who 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 writes so to speak writes melodies that that have a genesis in improvisation i have no i i have no idea i, I I'm, there must be other composers to do when i started out as a composer, I was also, as I mentioned earlier, playing dance classes for Martha Graham uh, Company and and school, uh, and so I was improvising within a very strict structure of, of Graham technique every day for, for a few years, and imp. Improvising, I, I knew that improvising was a very uh, a, a crucial part of, of um, a composer's arsenal in, at Beethoven and Mozart uh, all improvised their cadenzas and when they performed their concertos. The cadenzas were used to be in, improvised. Composers... It was you. You had to be able to improvise if you were a composer. Then that was just, that's just what people did. And I think a lot. I think a lot of Chopin was just. He would just sit down and play, and his students would transcribe what he wrote, mm -hmm. what he was playing, mm -hmm. and um, it, it. So it wasn't groundbreaking to do, 
It was part of a tradition. Uh, whether other composers do that today, I I don't. I really don't. I'm not qualified to say. I don't know. I don't know. Okay. I, do you? Not necessarily. No. I, I don't know. No. I, I wonder. I, this is my my instinct tells me it's a. I don't know if rarefied is the right word. A rarefied gift. Um, I I I wish I did it more. <laughs> well, it's something. Funny. It's it, it's a zone that that once I go into. It's 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 a very difficult zone to enter. It's spook. It's a little bit spooky. Well, it's funny because I thought you were going to go in a different direction with that because I certainly wanted to ask you next. You know, it always fascinates me when you take that so to speak big step to opera. First, the question, when is a composer like ready to write an opera? Is there a moment in time? Because I would say that now it looks as though you're known for being an opera composer. So um, I think that that makes me very sad, <laughs> actually, because uh, before I ever wrote an opera, I wrote I wrote four, three and a half piano concertos. The fourth, the fourth piano concerto was only five minutes and um so let's say three and two or three symphonies i don't really like the third symphony so i don't really count it but certainly the first and second uh the first for san francisco symphony which they toured with and the second for houston which which was recorded as i was composer in residence of the houston symphony a violin concerto, a viola concerto. Something commissioned um, for... Cello concerto. Commemorating the Brooklyn Bridge, I remember. That right. was my second piano concerto, yeah. Keys to the City. Yeah. Two string quartets, two piano quintets, uh, um, a, lot, a lot of instrument, a lot of chamber music and uh, symphonic music, other symphonic music, melodrama for narrator and orchestra, which I just recorded with the Nashville Symphony. Um, which came out on Noxus, I think, a year ago. You said it was a co-commission with the National Symphony as co -commissioned well? Co-commissioned by National Symphony. When, when do we get that in Washington? Because you had that in Washington. Oh, we did. Eschenbach conducted the world premiere on March 10th, okay. 2016, and I know that because I, my, I, we scheduled my, our wedding with at the Supreme Court when... Ruth Bader Ginsburg married my my husband and I, R.A. Liv Stolman, uh, around going to Washington for the rehearsals and premiere of Opera Without Words, it was called. It is called. And then... Uh, I, I love how that already kind of deconstructs the idea that, you know, are you an opera composer or what? And it's irrelevant. You're writing operas without words. <laughs> yeah, well, I did take... I hadn't written a, an orchestra, straight orchestra piece in years, but so I did... I did bring what I'd learned about lyric music in, into the into the orchestral realm. But I'm if I had if I had more time and was more disciplined, I would be writing many things besides operas. Sure. But, but uh, and I hope that I will go back to to doing to doing so um, i may may be known as an opera composer but um, even though i've written i'm now finishing the seventh maybe there's more op no there's probably just as much music i've written in terms of time 
musical time that's not that's not opera so I'm not sure I didn't I think I interrupted your question but no I think I don't want to dwell on the simplicity of the question either I think I just want to definitely make sure to talk about Awakenings which is your forthcoming opera that was deferred by the pandemic and is now going to be premiering in June 2022 in Opera Theater St. Louis and it is something that grew out of your friendship with Oliver Sacks and it is an adaptation of Awakenings Um, I wonder if one way to um, sort of arrive at that is to maybe ask you first what is your relationship with Tourette's syndrome? I mean, how does it interact with your musical life? And I've read Oliver Sacks have some comments on that. Whether, for example, it in- actually increases productivity, whether it is a can best better be described as a gift. Oh, well, he thought that, and I, I am, um, I can buy that. You know, I bought that. Uh, idea, uh, and it made me feel better about having it. Whether it's true or not, I have no idea. That mm-hmm. uh, there, it isn't. It is an. It is a kind of energy uh, uh, that 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 causes uh, that t- that is in control of my, of my body. Um, at times, and uh, so when I'm very focused on on music, on composing or or performing, it it it, it leaves me alone, and it does it it does it is known to to do that. Um, there, Oliver wrote about a brain surgeon I believe who had very bad Tourette's and but when he was operating he did it he was perfectly still so um, it, it could be that it that it is it's related to a creative gift it would be nice to think that there was there was some benefit to having to uh, to be tormented by this really quite annoying at you know at best and, and uh, almost debilitating neuro neurodivergent as it's called uh, syndrome uh, because. I would much rather have uh, not had Tourette's syndrome as a child, and I would much rather not have it as an adult. It's, I don't like it. <laughs> I don't enjoy it. So yeah, I mean, if it's a very Oliver had this romantic notion that, but I think I think, but Oliver was he he liked to make people feel better about being different. That was one of the what's one of the. Th- the, the things that de- defined him mm-hmm. as a great man because he did he he wrote and spoke uh, so much about nor- normalizing different normalizing di- divergence mm-hmm. uh neurological divergences divergencies um and and it did it did help a lot of people i i think 
feel better about themselves or not feel um, like freaks. So, I mean, I, in a sense, I feel like you've given the, the, the truest and purest artist's answer because what you're interested in is less of the noise and more about just producing the art that you want to produce. And anything that gets in your way is going to be bad and anything that helps is going to be good and all that you're focused on is the music itself. And there it is. Uh, but either, this also means that you know a thing or two about the subject of awakenings, which is not necessarily the same neurology, but it's they're definitely related. So um, in brief, I mean, what, what, what happened? Uh, this outbreak, and I, of course, these days we can't avoid tying such a pandemic with what's going on these days. And have you done so? Have you thought about the way the world reacted back then and how many died versus what's going on right now? Oh, yes. Uh, I, I, Awakenings was finished before, just before COVID hit. So it's complete coincidence that I wrote an opera uh, about a pandemic that whose premiere was postponed uh, because of a pandemic. And the pandemic was was a, a pandemic of sleep, what was called sleepy sickness uh, and, and, and the scientific term is encephalitis lethargica uh, it was it took place uh, it overlapped with the Spanish flu but it lasted much longer I think the Spanish flu only lasted three years but um, encephalitis lethargica uh, I believe lasted something like 10 and we don't really know how many people died from it oliver was convinced that around 5 million people died from from this disease and the, and very few survived it but when he was a young neurologist he uh, got a job at a hospital in the bronx um and encountered for the first time survivors of the sleepy sickness from the 1920s who were sitting in wheelchairs in a mental ward in the Bronx in 1969 and he he be, he became very interested in them and who they were why they were there what what was causing their dysfunction and um, came to the conclusion that it was that it was akin to a kind of parkinsonism and and was after fighting for it, given permission to experiment on them with the newly discovered drug L-Dopa, which was being used to treat Parkinson's patients very successfully. And he was able to awaken them after a, a sleep of 40 years, and they woke up, and they could move, they could walk, they could talk, they could sing, they could dance. They, if they played the piano before, they could play the piano. But there, the side effects from the uh, the drug were too much for some of them, and they they went off of it because they didn't want to. They, it create some of some of them had side effects of ticks uh, that were were violently severe that would put you know, make mine seem like nothing. But I certainly identified with with those how how those people were suffering. Just the people whose side effects were were uncontrollable ticks, very complex ticks. He called one person 
he said was a veritable symphony of ticks. Um, but I I loved this I loved his book, and uh, I I wrote a ballet with Alita Collins, the choreographer for the Rombert Dance Company, about ten years ago, which toured all, all whole UK with the live orchestra. Was it, that was before I wrote the opera, and that it's musically completely unrelated to the to the opera. Uh, are you? As we in the run up to, and if we anticipate the premiere of this opera, and how today's probably still lingering pandemic audience deals with it, I suppose there are potential concerns, aren't there? There are some people who are um, perhaps manufacturing paranoia about medical treatments uh, to solve things like this current pandemic that are distinguishable from what the sub the subject of awakenings. But is there still a positive common lesson that comes out of this? I guess put another way, are there policy um, insights that your opera are going to help us with? What will this mean to the audience? That's a really, really good question. It certainly will mean, mean different things and a, a lot more things to the audience in 2022 when it premieres, assuming it does premiere in June, than it would have in June of 2020 had there been no COVID. Then it would have been a story about an event that took place 100 years ago, far removed from our own experience. But now every single person attending this opera will have a personal connection to to the to these to the characters because all uh, the and and the and the physicians and nurses because because of having lived through this so um what will it mean to them i think it will mean like any like any any work of art it will mean something different to every person but it but but what it will mean to them is different from i think what it would have meant to them had they not had this own this experience themselves and been touched by by the current pandemic in one way or another um so i i think the message of the it does have a message the opera and that is uh it's a message of hope within despair, hope within sadness. It's in keeping with, I think, the the spirit of what we began talking about earlier of Brahms, which uh, I would say, if I had to characterize his music, it's it's hope within sadness contained within sadness um, and some ha- somewhere in this music of Brahms uh, is is consolation and and yeah and 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 hope and I I, I hope that uh, awakenings gives gives the uh, audience something of that experience well thank you Tobias 
I'm just going to wrap up by asking you just a round robin of a few pieces we heard in your recent concert that were um, paying a tribute to mm-hmm. your career, not just in opera, but as you say, in many other types of instrumental pieces, including chamber works. Uh, what would you say in brief about this solo piano piece called the Blue Hula? The Blue Hula was the middle movement of a of a 10-minute piece I wrote for a, a new music group in New York in the early, early 80s called the New York New Music Ensemble. And um, it, I wrote it when I was living in Hawaii in 1980 uh, on commission, um, and it, it, was, it scored for Puro plus percussion group. Uh, they commissioned a lot of pieces. New York New Music Ensemble, and um, this uh, this I extracted the middle movement because it's 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 just it's jazz, and I haven't written a lot of jazz, but this is one of the one of the jazz pieces that I wrote uh, beautifully played. I must say by Mark, really beautifully played, jazzily played with with elegance. Tell me about four etudes for Ursula, one of which we hear, and then, of course, begs the question, which Ursula are we talking about? It was written for Ursula Oppens, who is who who has been the doyen of of contemporary piano pianists, contemporary music pianists for the past fifty years in New York, and for whom I've written most of my piano music, and uh, who recorded was recorded most of it. Um, if we want to find an album, is there a, a, a great yes, uh, the, there is an album of my piano music that Ursula recorded. Along, we recorded what, Keys to the City, my second piano concerto, a two-piano arrangement of it that I made. Uh, but the rest is her playing solo piano pieces, and it's it's on a, a Virgo. Uh, W-E-R-G-O mm-hmm. recording call, and they named the album Keys to the City. You, four pieces, the four etudes are on that, you know. I, I wrote them for her in 96 when I, when I was writing Emmeline. Something else that you surely wrote for somebody is a piece that's simply called in all uppercase letters, Lenny. Yes, I, I, uh, I was asked to write a piece having to do with with uh, Lenny's 100th birthday by a pianist that I didn't know and who was um, who'd asked dozens of composers to write them little pieces in tribute to Leonard Bernstein um, and I I just I didn't really want to do that um, but although to write a piece for them because I didn't know them and I didn't also like to write a piece that was one of 40 pieces. So um, I must someday tell you what Morton Feldman's, what Morton Feldman told me about length, the length that pieces should be and why, but that, that's another discussion. But I, I did write the piece finally, but I didn't, I just didn't want to give it to the, to to this piano, this other pianist, and then, and Mark uh, Pelequin had uh, had um, such a keen interest in my work that I decided uh, t- 
to give it to him. And so it's written for Mark. Uh, it was me it was meant for Mark. It's like, I mean, I never even heard the other pianist play. Because <laughs> it's funny now that I hear the background, because it's almost a bit, I don't know if I want to say sarcastic or almost under duress, that it ends with a, I don't know if there's a music theory term that's equivalent to postscript. <laughs> but there's a little two-note postscript at the very end of the piece that actually was programmed nicely in the concert because eventually we hear Michael Kelly, the baritone, sing a version of Somewhere. Well, it's based on it's it's based on somewhere. It's a little variation, a crazy variation on somewhere. In, in uh, other words, it almost sounds kind of uh, rebellious. <laughs> the composition itself. It does. I'd actually, I it was not originally called Lenny. It was originally called What Happened in the Elevator because the first time I was. The first time I saw Leonard Bernstein was when I was nine, and my mother took me to a Leonard Bernstein Young People's Concert, and it was Andre Watts's debut, playing the Liszt Concerto, which was historic. I mean, at the time, it was big news. It was on the front page of the New York Times. It was such a success, and I was there. I was very excited. I met him 25 years later, 30 years later, and he heard Old and Lost Rivers on a concert he was playing on. I was That's why we met. And, and he took it up and he played it all over the world. And I said, I was there at your, at your debut. And he said, don't remind me how many years have gone by. I, I am, the next time I saw Leonard Bernstein was when I was a grown man in my 30s in an elevator. Uh, Going to Boozy and Hawks, his publisher, I was going there for some reason. And he got in the elevator and um, was recognized by some women tourists, or they seemed they seemed like tourists, but or they were they were gawking at him. And he turned um, his body around and his face and. To the into the corner of the elevator and stood stood like that until his floor arrived or theirs arrived and they got off and so I was I had originally called it what happened in the elevator but I thought it would require too much uh, explanation and and it's such a short piece it would take longer to explain the title than to listen to the piece so I thought just Lenny would be the right thing I uh, I then I then wrote a birthday piece for Charles Warren and was played at his 80th birthday, which he actually was around to hear, and that was called Charles. And I wrote another one uh, for Ursula Oppen's. Gee, I forget what set. I forget which birthday, uh, and called it Ursula. She did a concert for her 75th, maybe. I forget which, but... One more piece to ask you about is um, Car Aria from American Tragedy. Uh, what, what's happening in that moment in the opera? Um, Clyde Griffiths, who's just started working in his rich uncle's shirt, uh, shirt factory in upstate New York. He's a poor relation. Uh, is has finished his first day at work, and he sees 
his his spoiled rich cousin Gilbert going off in his motor car with with these beautiful girls to a party and he sees them get into the car at, well at the factory and uh wants he just he he wants to be him and he wants to have a motor car and uh he wants he wants the american dream um but he but he he goes about it the wrong way to conclude I thought I heard you say that you finished another opera. So what is that and when will we hear it? Uh, the new opera is called Lily Elba and it is uh, based on the life of Lily Elba, uh, Einar Wegener, before uh, her transition and her gender affirmation surgery in 1930, which was... Yeah, historic and unprecedented um, and also inspired the movie The Danish Girl um, and it will be premiered in um, uh, this just this time of year or October I think a little less than two years from now at Theatre St. Gallen the oldest uh, opera house in Switzerland and it's being written for uh, uh, the transgender baritone uh, Lucia Lucas, who um, is American, born and lives lives in Germany. Well, Tobias, thank you so much for recording your thoughts at this time uh, when we look forward to many more compositions to come and also continuing to go through your catalog and revive them around the world in concerts. Thank you, Paul.